Prologue to Bulldog Drummond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. Bulldog Drummond by Sapper. Herman Cyril MacNeil. Prologue. In the month of December 1918, and on the very day that a British cavalry division marched into Cologne, with flags flying and bands playing, as the conquerors of a beaten nation, the manager of the Hotel National in Bern received a letter. Its contents appeared to puzzle him somewhat, for, having read it twice, he rang the bell on his desk to summon his secretary. Almost immediately the door opened, and a young French girl came into the room. "'Monsieur rang?' She stood in front of the manager's desk, awaiting instructions. "'Have we ever had, staying in the hotel, a man called Le Comte de Gouy?' He leant back in his chair and looked at her through his pince-nez. The secretary thought for a moment, and then shook her head. "'Not so far as I can remember,' she said. "'Do we know anything about him? Has he ever fed here, or taken a private room?' Again the secretary shook her head. "'Not that I know of.' The manager handed her the letter, and waited in silence until she had read it. "'It seems on the face of it a peculiar request from an unknown man,' he remarked, as she laid it down. "'A dinner of four covers, no expense to be spared, wines specified, and if not in the hotel to be obtained. A private room at half-past seven sharp, guests to ask for Room X.' The secretary nodded in agreement. "'It can hardly be a hoax,' she remarked, after a short silence. "'No,' the manager tapped his teeth with his pen thoughtfully. "'But if by any chance it was, it would prove an expensive one for us. "'I wish I could think who this Comte de Gouy is.' "'He sounds like a Frenchman,' she answered. Then, after a pause— "'I suppose you will have to take it seriously.' "'I must.' He took off his pince-nez and laid them on the desk in front of him. "'Would you send the maître d'hôtel to me at once?' Whatever may have been the manager's misgivings, they were certainly not shared by the head-waiter as he left the office after receiving his instructions. War and short rations had not been conducive to any particular lucrative business in his sphere, and the whole sound of the proposed entertainment seemed to him to contain considerable promise. Moreover, he was a man who loved his work, and a free hand over preparing a dinner was a joy in itself. Undoubtedly he personally would meet the three guests, and the mysterious Comte de Guy. He personally would see that they had nothing to complain of in the matter of service at dinner— and so, at about twenty minutes past seven, the maître d'hôtel was hovering round the hall-porter, the manager was hovering round the maître d'hôtel, and the secretary was hovering around both. At five and twenty minutes past, the first guest arrived. He was a peculiar-looking man in a big fur coat, reminding one irresistibly of a codfish. "'A wish to be taken to room X.' The French secretary stiffened involuntarily as the maître d'hôtel stepped obsequiously forward. Cosmopolitan as the hotel was, even now she could never hear German spoken without an inward shudder of disgust. <laughs> A bosh! 
she murmured in disgust to the manager as the first arrival disappeared through the swing doors at the end of the lounge. It is to be regretted that that worthy man was more occupied in shaking himself by the hand at the proof that the letter was bona fide than in any meditation on the guest's nationality. Almost immediately afterwards the second and third members of the party arrived. They did not come together, and what seemed peculiar to the manager was that they were evidently strangers to one another. The leading one, a tall, gaunt man with a ragged beard and a pair of piercing eyes, asked in a nasal and by no means an inaudible tone, for Room X. As he spoke, a little fat man who was standing just behind him started perceptibly, and shot a bird-like glance at the speaker. Then, in execrable French, he too asked for Room X. "'He's not French.' said the secretary, excitedly to the manager, as the ill-assorted pair were led out of the lounge by the head-waiter. "'That last one was another Bosch.' The manager thoughtfully twirled his pince-nez between his fingers. Two Germans and an American.' He looked a little apprehensive. "'Let us hope the dinner will appease everybody. Otherwise—' But whatever fears he might have entertained with regard to the furniture in Rumix, they were not destined to be uttered. Even as he spoke, the door again swung open, and a man with a thick white scarf around his neck, so pulled up as almost completely to cover his face, came in. A soft hat was pulled down well over his ears, and all that the manager could swear to as regards the newcomer's appearance was a pair of deep-set steel-grey eyes which seemed to bore through him. "'You got my letter this morning, Monsieur le Comte de Guy. The manager bowed deferentially, and rubbed his hands together. "'Everything is ready, and your three guests have arrived.' "'Good. I will go to the room at once.' The maître d'hôtel stepped forward to relieve him of his coat, but the Count waved him away. "'I will remove it later,' he remarked shortly. "'Take me to the room.' As he followed his guise, his eyes swept round the lounge— save for two or three elderly women of doubtful nationality and a man in the american red cross the place was deserted and as he passed through the swing doors he turned to the head-waiter business good he asked no business decidedly was not good the waiter was voluble business had never been so poor in the memory of man but it was to be hoped that the dinner would be to monsieur le comte's liking he personally had superintended it also the wines "'If everything is to my satisfaction, you will not regret it,' said the Count tersely. "'But remember one thing. After the coffee has been brought in, I do not wish to be disturbed under any circumstances whatever.' The head-waiter paused as he came to a door, and the Count repeated the last few words. "'Under no circumstances whatever.' "'Mais certainement, Monsieur le Comte, I personally will see to it.' As he spoke, he flung open the door, and the Count entered. It cannot be said that the atmosphere of the room was congenial. The three occupants were regarding one another in hostile silence, and as the Count entered, they, with one accord, transferred their suspicious glance to him. For a moment he stood motionless, while he looked at each one in turn. Then he stepped forward. "'Good evening, gentlemen.' He still spoke in French. "'I am honoured at your presence.' He turned to the head-waiter. "'Let dinner be served in five minutes exactly.' 
With a bow, the man left the room, and the door closed. "'During that five minutes, gentlemen, I propose to introduce myself to you, and you to one another.' As he spoke, he divested himself of his coat and hat. "'The business which I wish to discuss we will postpone, with your permission, till after coffee, when we shall be undisturbed.' In silence the three guests waited while he unwound the thick white muffler, then, with undisguised curiosity, they studied their host. In appearance he was striking. He had a short dark beard, and in profile his face was aquiline and stern. The eyes which had so impressed the manager seemed now to be a cold grey-blue. The thick brown hair, flecked slightly with grey, was brushed back from a broad forehead. His hands were large and white, not effeminate, but capable and determined the hands of a man who knew what he wanted, knew how to get it, and got it. To even the most superficial observer, the giver of the feast was a man of power, a man capable of forming instant decisions and of carrying them through. And if so much was obvious to the superficial observer, it was more than obvious to the three men who stood by the fire watching him. They were what they were, simply owing to the fact that they were not superficial servers of humanity, and each one of them, as he watched his host, realised that he was in the presence of a great man. It was enough. Great men do not send fool invitations to dinner to men of international repute. It mattered not what form his greatness took. There was money in greatness, big money, and money was their life. The Count advanced first to the American. "'Mr. Hocking, I believe,' he remarked in English, holding out his hand. "'I'm glad you managed to come.' The American shook the proffered hand, while the two Germans looked at him with sudden interest. As the man at the head of the great American Cotton Trust, worth more in millions than he could count, he was entitled to their respect. "'That's me, Count,' returned the millionaire, in his nasal twang. "'I am interested to know to what I am indebted for this invitation.' "'All in good time, Mr. Hocking,' smiled the host. "'I have hopes that the dinner will fill in that time satisfactorily.' He turned to the taller of the two Germans, who, without his coat, seemed more like a codfish than ever. "'Herr Steinmann, is it not?' This time he spoke in German. The man, whose interest in German coal was hardly less well known than Hocking's in cotton, bowed stiffly. "'And Herr von Gratz.' The Count turned to the last member of the party, and shook hands. Though less well known than either of the other two in the realms of international finance, von Gratz's name in the steel trade in Central Europe was one to conjure with. "'Well, gentlemen,' said the Count, "'before we sit down to dinner, I may perhaps be permitted to say a few words of introduction. The nations of the world have recently been engaged in a performance of unrivalled stupidity.' As far as one can tell, that performance is now over. The last thing I wish to do is to discuss the war, except in so far as it concerns our meeting here to-night. Uh, Mr. Hocking is an American. You two gentlemen are Germans. I—the Count smiled slightly—have no nationality, or rather, shall I say, I have every nationality, completely cosmopolitan. "'Gentlemen, the war was waged by idiots. 
and when idiots get busy on a large scale it is time for clever men to step in that is the raison d'etre for this little dinner i claim that we four men are sufficiently international to be able to disregard any stupid and petty feelings about this country and that country and to regard the world outlook at the present moment from one point of view and one point of view only our own the gaunt american gave a hoarse chuckle it will be my object after dinner continued the count to try and prove to you that we have a common point of view until then shall we merely concentrate on a pious hope that the hotel national will not poison us with their food i guess remarked the american that you've got a pretty healthy command of languages count i speak four fluently french german english and spanish returned the other in addition i can make myself understood in russia japan china the balkan states and uh, america his smile as he spoke robbed the words of any suspicion of offence the next moment the head-waiter opened the door and the four men sat down to dine it must be admitted that the average hostess desirous of making a dinner a success would have been filled with secret dismay at the general atmosphere in the room the american in accumulating his millions had also accumulated a digestion of such an exotic and tender character that dry rusks and fishy water were the limit of his capacity herr steinmann was of the common order of german to whom food was sacred he ate and drank enormously and evidently considered that nothing further was required of him von gratz did his best to keep his end up but as he was apparently in a chronic condition of fear that the gaunt american would assault him with violence he cannot be said to have contributed much to the gaiety of the meal and so to the host must be given the credit that the dinner was a success without appearing to monopolize the conversation he talked ceaselessly and well more he talked brilliantly there seemed to be no corner of the globe with which he had not a nodding acquaintance at least while with most places he was as familiar as a londoner with piccadilly circus but to even the most brilliant of conversationalists the strain of talking to a hypochondriacal american and two germans one greedy and the other frightened is considerable and the count heaved an inward sigh of relief when the coffee had been handed round and the door closed behind the waiter from now on the topic was an easy one one where no effort on his part would be necessary to hold his audience it was the topic of money the common bond of his three guests and yet as he carefully cut the end of his cigar and realized that the eyes of the other three were fixed on him expectantly he knew that the hardest part of the evening was in front of him big financiers in common with all other people are fonder of having money put into their pockets than of taking it out and that was the very thing the count proposed they should do in large quantities gentlemen he remarked when his cigar was going to his satisfaction we are all men of business i do not propose therefore to beat about the bush over the matter which i have to put before you but to come to the point at once i said before dinner that i considered we were sufficiently big to exclude any small arbitrary national distinctions from our minds as men whose interests are international such things are beneath us i wish now to slightly qualify that remark 
he turned to the American on his right, who, with his eyes half-closed, was thoughtfully picking his teeth. "'At this stage, sir, I address myself particularly to you.' "'Go right ahead,' drawled Mr. Hocking. "'I do not wish to touch on the war or its results, but though the central powers have been beaten by America and France and England, I think I can speak for you two gentlemen,' he bowed to the two Germans, when I say that it is neither France nor America with whom they desire another round. England is Germany's main enemy. She always has been. She always will be. Both Germans grunted assent, and the American's eyes closed a little more. I have reason to believe, Mr. Hocking, that you personally do not love the English. I guess I don't see what my private feelings have got to do with it. "'But if it's of any interest to the company, you are correct in your belief.' "'Good.' The Count nodded his head, as if satisfied. "'I take it, then, that you would not be averse to seeing England down and out?' <laughs> "'Well,' remarked the American, "'you can assume anything you feel like. Let's get to the showdown.' Once again the Count nodded his head. Then he turned to the two Germans. Now, you two gentlemen must admit that your plans have miscarried somewhat. It was no part of your original programme that a British army should occupy Cologne. "'So was an act of a fool,' snarled Herr Steinmann. "'In a few years more of peace we should have beaten those swine.' "'And now they have beaten you.' The Count smiled slightly. "'Let us admit that the war was the act of a fool, if you like, "'but as men of business we can only deal with the result. "'The result, gentlemen, as it concerns us. "'Both you gentlemen are sufficiently patriotic "'to resent the presence of that army in Cologne, I have no doubt. "'And you, Mr. Hocking, have no love on personal grounds for the English. "'But I am not proposing to appeal to financiers of your reputation "'on such grounds as those to support my scheme. "'It is enough that your personal predilections run with "'and not against what I am about to put before you. "'The defeat of England, a defeat more utter and complete "'than if she had lost the war.' "'His voice sank a little, and instinctively his three listeners drew closer.' "'Don't think that I am proposing this through motives of revenge merely. "'We are businessmen. "'Revenge is only worth our while if it pays. "'This will pay. "'I can give you no figures, but we are not of the type "'who deals in thousands or even hundreds of thousands. "'There is a force in England which, if it be harnessed and led properly, "'will result in millions coming to you. "'It is present now in every nation, fettered, inarticulate.' uncoordinated it is partly the result of the war the war that the idiots have waged harness that force gentlemen coordinate it and use it for your own ends that is my proposal not only will you humble that cursed country to the dirt but you will taste of power such as few men have tasted before the count stood up his eyes blazing and i i will do it for you he resumed his seat, and his left hand, slipping off the table, beat a tattoo on his knee. "'This is our opportunity, the opportunity of clever men. I have not got the money necessary. You have.' 
He leant forward in his chair and glanced at the intent faces of his audience. Then he began to speak. Ten minutes later he pushed back his chair. "'There is my proposal, gentlemen, in a nutshell. Unforeseen developments will doubtless occur. I have spent my life overcoming the unexpected. What is your answer?' He rose and stood with his back to them by the fire, and for several minutes no one spoke. Each man was busy with his own thoughts, and showed it in his own particular way. The American, his eyes shut, rolled his toothpick backwards and forwards in his mouth, slowly and methodically. Steinmann stared at the fire, breathing heavily after the exertions of dinner. Von Gratz walked up and down, his hands behind his back, whistling under his breath. Only the Comte de Gris stared unconcernedly at the fire as if indifferent to the result of their thoughts. In his attitude at that moment he gave a true expression of his attitude on life. Accustomed to play with great stakes, he had just dealt the cards for the most gigantic gamble of his life. What matter to the three men who were looking at the hands he had given them, that only a master criminal could have conceived such a game? The only question which occupied their minds was whether he could carry it through and on that point they had only their judgment of his personality to rely on. Suddenly the American removed the toothpick from his mouth and stretched out his legs. "'There is a question which occurs to me, Count, before I make up my mind on the matter. I guess you got us sized up to the last button. You know who we are, what we're worth, and all about us. Are you disposed to be a little more communicative about yourself?' If we come in on this hand, it's going to cost big money. The handling of that money is with you. Well, who are you? Von Gratz paused in his restless pacing, and nodded his head in agreement. Even Steinmann, with a great effort, raised his eyes to the Count's face as he turned and faced them. A very fair question, gentlemen, and yet one which I regret I am unable to answer. I would not insult your intelligence by giving you the fictitious address of a fictitious count. Enough that I am a man whose livelihood lies in other people's pockets. As you say, Mr. Hocking, it is going to cost big money, but compared to the results, the cost will be a flea-bite. Do I look, and you are all of you used to judging men, do I look the type who would steal the baby's money-box which lay on the mantelpiece when the pearls could be had for opening the safe?' You'll have to trust me, even as I shall have to trust you. You will have to trust me not to divert the money which you give me as working expenses in my own pocket. I shall have to trust you to pay me when the job is finished. And that payment will be how much? Steinmann's guttural voice broke the silence. One million pounds sterling to be split up between you in any proportion you may decide, and to be paid within one month of the completion of my work. After that the matter will pass into your hands, and may you leave that cursed country grovelling in the dirty. His eyes glowed with a fierce, vindictive fury, and then, as if replacing a mask which had slipped for a moment, the Count was once again the suave, courteous host. He had stated his terms, frankly, and without haggling, stated them as one big man states to another of the same kidney, to whom time is money and indecision or beating about the bush anathema. Take them or leave them. 
so much had he said in effect, if not in actual words, and not one of his audience, but was far too used to men and matters to have dreamt of suggesting any compromise. All or nothing, and no doctrine could have appealed more to the three men in whose hands lay the decision. "'Perhaps, Count, you would be good enough to leave us for a few minutes,' von Gratz was speaking. "'The decision is a big one, and—' uh... "'Why, certainly, gentlemen.' The Count moved towards the door. "'I will return in ten minutes. By that time you will have decided, one way or the other.' Once in the lounge he sat down and lit a cigarette. The hotel was deserted, save for one fat woman asleep in a chair opposite, and the Count gave himself up to thought. Genius that he was in reading of men's minds, he felt that he knew the result of that ten minutes' deliberation. And then? What then? In his imagination he saw his plans growing and spreading, his tentacles reaching into every corner of a great people, until at last everything was ready. He saw himself supreme in power, glutted with it, a king, an autocrat, who had only to lift his finger to plunge his kingdom into destruction and annihilation. And when he had done it, and the country he hated was in ruins, then he would claim his million, and enjoy it as a great man should enjoy a great reward. Thus, for the space of ten minutes, did the Count see visions and dream dreams. That the force he proposed to tamper with was a dangerous force disturbed him not at all. He was a dangerous man. That his scheme would bring ruin, perhaps death, to thousands of innocent men and women, caused him no qualm. He was a supreme egoist. All that appealed to him was that he had seen the opportunity that existed, and that he had the nerve and the brain to turn that opportunity to his own advantage. Only the necessary money was lacking, and— With a quick movement he pulled out his watch. They had had their ten minutes. The matter was settled. The die was cast. He rose and walked across the lounge. At the swing-doors was the head-waiter, bowing obsequiously. It was to be hoped that the dinner had been to the liking of Monsieur le Comte, the wines all that he could wish, that he had been comfortable, and would return again. That is improbable. The Count took out his pocket-book. But one never knows. Perhaps I shall. He gave the waiter a note. Let my bill be prepared at once, and given to me as I pass through the hall. Apparently without a care in the world, the Count passed down the passage to his private room, while the head-waiter regarded complacently the unusual appearance of an English five-pound note. For an appreciable moment the Count paused by the door, and a faint smile came to his lips. Then he opened it, and passed into the room. The American was still chewing his toothpick. Steinmann was still breathing hard. Only von Gratz had changed his occupation, and he was sitting at the table smoking a long, thin cigar. The Count closed the door and walked over to the fireplace. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, quietly, "'what have you decided?' It was the American who answered. "'It goes, with one amendment. The money's too big for the three of us. There must be a fourth. That will be a quarter of a million each.' The Count bowed. "'Yep,' said the American shortly. "'These two gentlemen agree with me that it should be another of my countrymen, so that we get equal numbers. The man we have decided on is coming to England in a few weeks. R.M.C. Potts. If you get him in, you can count us in, too. If not, 
the deal's off. The Count nodded, and if he felt annoyance at this unexpected development, he showed no sign of it on his face. "'I know of Mr. Potts,' he answered quietly. "'Your big shipping man, isn't he? "'I agree to your reservation.' "'Good,' said the American. "'Let's discuss some details.' Without a trace of emotion on his face, the Count drew up a chair to the table. It was only when he sat down that he started to play a tattoo on his knee with his left hand. Half an hour later he entered his luxurious suite of rooms at the Hotel Magnificent. A girl who had been lying by the fire reading a French novel looked up at the sound of the door. She did not speak, for the look on his face told her all she wanted to know. He crossed to the sofa and smiled down at her. "'Successful on our own terms. "'Tomorrow, Irma, the Comte de Guide dies, "'and Carl Peterson and his daughter leave for England. "'A country gentleman, I think, is Carl Peterson. "'He might keep hens and possibly pigs.' "'The girl on the sofa rose, yawning. Oh, "'Mon Dieu, what a prospect! "'Pigs and hens in, in England! "'How long is it going to take?' The Count looked thoughtfully into the fire. "'Perhaps a year, perhaps six months. It is in the lap of the gods.'" End of Prologue